The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar three times. Maybe it's time you switch to Red. And for Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello everybody, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger for our 260th episode in a busy week when PM Anthony Albanese has signed off on a TikTok ban of all government devices. Australia has lost one of its great First Nations leaders. Barnaby Joyce says the voice to parliament referendum goes against the tenor of our democracy. And three young Jewish women have been in court to hear a jury find guilty the monster who abused them when they were children. Carol, it's a really extraordinary case of school principal, former school principal Michael Leffer, isn't it? The entire world, I gather, is watching this case. There's a bit going on in America too. Yeah, that's a shocking story. Um, The former American president has been indicted. It's unbelievable. As we sit here, this is Tuesday morning, Donald Trump has arrived in New York, high security. The mayor of New York has called for calm as Donald Trump's motorcade makes its way to Trump Tower and then, of course... Tomorrow, our time, he will be appearing at court. It's a pretty extraordinary story, isn't it? There's a lot going on. Is it because it's Easter week and everything's been squashed into three days? And then there was the Aston by-election, which um, for the first time ever, I think a sitting government has actually won a by-election from the opposition, won, won a seat. And, you know, so many mistakes the Liberal Party are making at the moment. Even Sky News has turned, as you pointed out to me before the podcast on Peter Dutton. Um, his explanations were pretty lame. A really interesting article in The Australian where, you know, describing it, because they talk about Peter Dutton blames Victoria for all of Liberals' problems, but it does seem to be nationwide. But it is true that... We um, in Victoria produced six Liberal leaders, Robert Menzies, Harold Holt, John Gordon, Billy Sneddon, Malcolm Fraser, Andrew Peacock, um, Liberal leaders, I should say, and all the seats they held apart from Wannan, Malcolm Fraser's seat, are now in the hands of Labor. Or the Teals. Or the Teals. Yes, now, Andrew They've all um, been Andrew lost. Peacock. Yeah, Sorry. that's right. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's hard to believe that... Victoria could... used to be the blue Liberal heartland. And, you know, you make decisions like um, putting in um, putting in a new candidate who is not going to be particularly popular because she comes, she lives she in a suburb 45 kilometres away. Um, the Liberals were very critical about Daniel Andrew, Andrews' visit to China. Whatever you think about that, there are a lot of Chinese people in Aston. They clearly weren't happy. And they didn't, the Liberals didn't even turn out to vote. It looks like, you know, the, the Labor polling was that it was going to be a really close by-election. They won it by a lot more than they expected because their members, their supporters turned out to vote and the Liberals didn't. Well, a little bit more on this in Grumpy. I'm grumpy about a particular aspect of behaviour last week in which happened at, at Parliament House in Canberra. But, Cara, we have a lot to talk about. First of all, acknowledging our and thanking our podcast sponsors, Red Energy, of course, awarded Australia's most trusted energy providers by CanStar three times and Prince Wine Store. Uh, we love you guys. Uh, thank you very much for supporting our podcast. And, of course, Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store will be with us for the Cocktail Cabinet a little bit later on. Caro, you and I have been watching a cracker of a Netflix series. I have a book that I think is one of the author's finest works. 
You have an amazing recipe. The I world's saw, I the simplest, there. easiest recipe. Looks My great. sister passed on to me. It is so delicious and so easy. You're going to love it. But let's stay in Canberra, Caro, for our first discussion point. Anthony Albanese's apology last week to Vietnam veterans for the poor treatment and lack of acknowledgement they received as he marked the 50th anniversary at the end of Australia's role in that war, in that conflict. You and I caught up with that, but it seems like a lot of the news world did not. It was one of those stories that just uh, should have had more publicity. Were you a bit surprised by the lack of publicity? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people, I mean, one commentator pointed out that maybe a lot of journos in the media now are too young to remember the Vietnam War. And I certainly don't have clear memories of it, but I do remember that Vietnam veterans just weren't treated with anywhere near the same respect as World War II veterans or when I was young, you know, World War I veterans who were still alive. So Anthony Albanese was really heartfelt and he admitted that they had been pretty much shunned. I mean, there were problems with them, you know, being involved in the RSL for a while. They were... Um, Vietnam veterans were sort of discouraged from marching on Anzac Day. They were basically, well, obviously... They were ridiculed. There they, were demonstrations. They had flower bombs thrown at them. There were demonstrations, you know, against the Vietnam War, but that was a different thing. So they were made to feel like pariahs. And it's extraordinary to think that it's taken until 2023 for the Prime Minister to actually, a Prime Minister to actually apologise to them. But it was a heartfelt apology. It was. Caro, the book I'm going to talk about, Don Watson's book uh, later on, does touch on this. We did an event with Don last week and he reminded us that uh, for the first few years, our, the RSL did not accept Vietnam War vets because they saw it as a political um, action rather than um, a national action of war. So that, so that was their excuse at the time. 60,000 Australians served in the Vietnam War and more than 3,000 of them were wounded and 523 were killed. So that And most me, of them, a lot of them were forced to go. They were conscripted. They were indeed. It was, um, but I thought his uh, I thought his comments were terrific. He said, "We honour you, we thank you, and we are so sorry it took us so long as a nation to do so. You deserve better." And I thought that was a lovely way to start his formal uh, apology and his his acknowledgement in Parliament. Um, doesn't saying sorry work wonders? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I wonder. It's usually it's usually fraught in legalese, isn't it? And you know, people are worried about lawyers, and that's why the AFL never really properly apologised to Adam Goods. Like they never put out a public apology with a name on it. They apologised on behalf of the game. Do you think they were afraid that he was going to sue? Oh, partly, or mm. part? No, partly. It was more that they were just not. No one was prepared to individually take responsibility. They blamed other people. They, I, there was a lot of buck passing. And that's what happens in a lot of these situations. But the Prime Minister is the Prime Minister. The Chairman of the AFL is the Chairman of the <laughs> AFL. It might not have happened on his watch, but it doesn't mean that the role has to take responsibility for it. And that's what's always disappointed me about a lot of apologies. I did a media training session with an organisation last week and... Um, uh, we were talking about when something happens, when there's a crisis in your organisation. Why were you, you doing have... media training? <clears throat> I was taking the course. I was taking it. I wasn't doing it myself. Why, well, were you, I, why do you need media training? No, I didn't need it. I was giving the course. Oh, you were right. I was instructing a management team on how to deal with the You've media. You've gone over to the dark side. 
no, I was just a lecturer, Karen. <laughs> Call me an academic. Call me Dr. Perkin. And I was Did saying, you do role-playing? No, we didn't do any role-playing. I hate that stuff. But I was just saying to them that there's nothing, don't ever be fearful. If something goes wrong in your organisation and the media is asking questions as they should, don't, depending on the circumstances, but don't ever be afraid to say sorry because it's like pricking a balloon. As soon as you say sorry to somebody, even in a dinner party discussion or something, as soon as you say, look, I'm sorry, I actually stuffed that up, it, it requires an enormous amount of um, um, uh I mean, you have to let go of your pride, don't you? It requires an enormous amount of humility and confidence. Nobody to be able likes to do being it. wrong. No one likes to be wrong, but I think when you do it, suddenly there's a big deep breath, and the anger and the angst goes out of the situation. And I just hope that for the Vietnam War vets, that there, that something like that happened last week with this apology. Caro, I remember the Vietnam War very well, even though you and I are the same age, because my brother, who is depending on what time of year it is, seven or eight years older than me, he was coming toward, he was coming toward his, uh, his conscription age where his, his birthday made it made, How bizarre was that? A little ball had your birthday. 12th of the 12th is Steve's birthday. And same, you, were forced, same as you were forced to go to another country and, you were being and fight pulled, someone else's war. <laughs> you were being pulled out of like, t- like um, the old... Um, Tattersalls? Not Tats Lotto, you know, the, yep. the bouncing ball. And then those people, if your number was up, you had to go. And um, and so we were heading toward the election of Gough, which Gough Whitlam won in December 1972. We were heading toward that as a family with the prospect that our, well, my parents' son, my brother, would be called up. So it was very real in our life, completely. And um, it was a... It was a bizarre time also having a dad who was editor of The Age and The Age actually had, I think um, dad had a reporter actually called the Vietnam, you know, the local protest correspondent or something, whatever it was called. But protests were happening all over town. I remember the moratorium in Victoria. With Jim Cairns, yeah. In the late 1960s. But there were a lot of them. University campuses were exploding all over the country. It was a really difficult time. So I was very um, glad about that. We're coming up toward um, Anzac Day. Any different reflections from last year? Um, Oh, look, I, I, I think Anzac Day will sit more comfortably with a lot of people now this apology has been made. I agree. And I think it, I think it was a, a pretty impressive thing to do. I, um, I certainly remember when Gough Whitlam came in and that was one of his key platforms. He was going to abolish conscription and bring about equal pay for women and all these things. I remember even as a, well, I must have been, you know, I must have been 12 when he won. I remember thinking it was just extraordinary that only now were they going to stop forcing people to go and fight in wars. <laughs> Which is, and remember the term draft dodger? Like that was, it was just so, um, it was, you were a pariah. You went to places like Nimbin to hide from the police. Yeah. It It was a bizarre time. Hey, Caro, I wanted to ask you about Gillam McLaughlin because there is a bit of chatter that his uh, his time is, he's going to finally leave the office of the CEO of the AFL. Well, Corrie, he resigned a year ago, so. I, I know, but there's some, there's some comment about the round five was going to be his kind of farewell or his, I don't, I don't know whether that date has now just been overlooked or whether we should be waiting with bated breath for something to happen next week. But where are we? Who's getting the job? What's the gossip? And why is that commission taking so long? Well, the commission's weak and they're pretty much, um, it, it feels as though Gillan McLaughlin is going to be the one who has a major say in his successor. In my is that right or wrong? Well, given that he didn't 
anoint a successor many, many years ago. He tried to anoint a few and they kept he kept changing his mind or people didn't want to do it or didn't come up, didn't really come up to the um, brief. I think that, look, the, the favourite is Andrew Dillon, who is um, Gillan McLaughlin's current football lieutenant, long-time AFL legal counsel, very popular, smart guy, been at the AFL for a very long time. God, must be nearly two decades now. Um, he is, um, look, he's a really interesting man, Andrew Dillon. He's not probably not the charismatic leader that Gillan McLaughlin is or Andrew Demetriou was in terms of, well, Andrew Demetriou was very definitive and far less consultative than Gillan McLaughlin. Um, Brendan Gale's still in there, the Richmond CEO, who a lot of the clubs think really should be the preferred candidate and some people within the AFL. But I think there's a feeling that Brendan Gale is not seen by Gillan McLaughlin as his natural successor, which is in, interesting in itself. But that's, that's interesting. And and also Brendan Gale is a former president of the Players Association, so he's had... Yeah, and rebuilt Richmond. And rebuilt Richmond. Which was a basket case when he became CEO and is now one of the most powerful clubs in the AFL in terms of finances and obviously on field he's seen them, lead them to great success and, you know, worked with the AFL's first football club president, a woman club president, stood up to angry supporters. I mean... He, both candidates are pretty impressive, I think, to be honest. Travis Ald is still in there, another AFL. There's four, three AFL execs, execs in for the job, including their commercial boss, Kylie Rogers. There are apparently two other candidates. The Bulldogs president, Kylie Watson-Wheeler, keeps denying she's part of it, but I know the uh, Disney boss, I know the AFL looked at her as well. And I feel that they must make it. Gillan McLaughlin's just returned from Perth where he was at the Derby, the footy game on the weekend with Richard Goiter, the chairman. I think the biggest story is the dissatisfaction at the moment, Corey, with the commission. There's two casual vacancies. They've been there for oh, over two years now. There's no former player on the commission for the first time ever. The clubs have been Which really... Which is just really terrible. That a, is just terrible. A year ago, the club presidents met with the commission or the noms committee club presidents and names were put forward and Richard Goiter was going to act upon it soon. He never did. The feeling is, again, the commission is not really re representative of the game anymore and it's increasingly remote. Decisions at head office are being made increasingly by emails to clubs and not phone calls and meetings. The competition committee hasn't met since last November. The football bosses from all the clubs haven't had a meeting this year. There's no head of football at the moment since Brant Scott went to coach Essendon. He hasn't be, been replaced. There's an acting head of footy, Laura Kane, who's very impressive, but hasn't been given the job. Um, Andrew Dillon, the overall footy executive, is going for the top job. So you can't sort of think that things are really being run with the hands-on efficiency that they were under Steve Hocking and Brad Scott. It's and, of course, what happens is change culture and people's fear of it. And you've got a, an organisation of 500-plus people around the country who don't know who their next boss is going to be. Yeah, look, it's it's going to be really interesting at Gather Round, you think, which, is going to, which I'm going to talk about a bit more in a moment. But that's in Adelaide. That comes straight after Easter. And that's an extraordinary event in itself. It is seen as a logical handover for Gillan McLaughlin, who was hanging around. One reason he was hanging around was because he wanted to be the, to get the Tasmanian deal done. But there, he's a great deal maker. He's been a brilliant boss in many ways of the game. But there, there are a few deals going around at the moment that are defeating him. I mean, the Hawthorne racism, as it's called, inquiry, has just become a mired 
mired in legalese. There's a concussion situation. Tasmania, will they or won't they get money from the federal government for the new stadium in Hobart? All will be revealed. Corrie, All now- be revealed. What an interesting start to the season, though, Caro. Geelong, who won the premiership last year, are uh, zip. Your Asterix team, Hawthorne, had a good win on the weekend. They just did. thought I'd point that out. They did. But what's so interesting for me is the, because um, being a Melbourne girl and remembering the VFL in its old uh, its old guise, look at the ladder. St Kilda, Collingwood, Carlton, Melbourne. It's pretty good. And then you've got the Swans in there, but then Essendon, North Melbourne, Richmond. That's an old-fashioned start to the ladder if ever I saw. It, it is old-fashioned. Saints! That was a good game. I watched that game. It, oh, weren't they unbelievable? They were really good. Corrie, before we move on any further, we should remind people that we have a live podcast event at the end of the month. We do. Tell us all about it. Well, it's going to be on the 26th of April. We talked about Anzac Day. The day after Anzac Day, down at the Sorrento RSL, 7pm. Oh, it's 5pm, I should say. Go still 7pm. 5pm, Wednesday, April 26th. $40 a ticket. To hear Corrie, me, Anna from the Op Shop and a few of our other literary friends do a live podcast. There's a drink in there for you. There's some light finger food in there for you and you can keep buying drinks if you want to. But um, we'll give you one on arrival and we'd love to meet you. We it's, would. It launches. It's not the launch of the Sorrento Writers Festival. It sort of is. There's the soft launch, the night before the first day. But what is so lovely is the RSL has put its hand up. Hello, Marg and all the gang at the RSL. In fact, talking to Marg the other day, Carol, I volunteered to help serve the breakfast. They have a big breakfast on Anzac Day morning after the dawn service. Can so you put I'll aside be... a few egg and bacon rolls for us potties the yeah. next day? I might be a bit old by then. Corrie, I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be our regular weekly podcast. We'll have probably have Miles on the line with some great wine wine suggestions. We're going to have a lot of books to recommend and obviously films and food, and I'm sure there'll be another whole set of issues. We'll, be, we'll have beset us by then. But well, that come, is... come join us, everyone. So don't forget, if you want to book a ticket, feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au for the booking link. Caro, on that note, we might have a bit of a drink with uh, Miles. And here comes Miss Jane with the cocktail cabinet and Miles Thompson is sitting on top of it with some recommendations, Caro, for Easter lunch. Hello, Miles. Good good morning. Good morning. Now tell us what is in your Easter lunch box today. Well, I picked a, a, a few things. Obviously something that's going to go with fish or, or seafood um, and a nice little bread to go with lamb, of, of course or any red meat if, you, if you're having it over the weekend. Uh, and something for dessert to go with hot cross buns, because who doesn't love a hot cross bun? Oh, <laughs> do you know what? I You've just reminded me about hot cross buns. I have not thought about a hot cross bun for a week. Oh, you're joking. I know, that, I know they've been in supermarkets for ages, but I just oh, haven't actually thought annoying. about buying. Oh, you, thank you. They now, come um, out too early, Miles. You're right. Too and, early. And I was at Morning Market the other day in Paran, and they had a thing, it was actually two weeks ago, they're calling them Easter buns, and there are two different flavours. One with chocolate in. Now I'm just. Oh, sorry. I'm not copying that. No, it's just not yeah. happening. You're talking Classic. to the granddaughter of a baker here, who until almost until <laughs> the week before he died, he was still cooking his hot cross buns. Not oh. chocolate. Not in, not not anything no. like that. Miles, tell us what what if we're having fish, seafood, particularly an old fashioned Good Friday lunch uh, recipe. Um, you know, a, 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 
I suppose, a tradition really for people who do remember the old Christian principle of only having fish on Good Friday. What are you suggesting? Right. So I picked a, a, a Pinot Blanc, and it's from New Zealand, um, from a producer uh, called uh, Escarpment. Um, just look, at, the nice thing about Pinot Blanc, it's, it's, and, and the nice thing about this one in particular, is it has a lovely richness and, and a little bit of sort of like fat on its bones. So it's going to kind of go with maybe fish that has some like creamier sauces or things like that, or it has enough freshness and acidity that you could have it with just something like fresh grilled fish. So kind of whatever sort of, or any even like sweet tea, but if you're doing prawns or seafood like that, I think it would go really well. It has a little bit of barrel ferment on it. So it does see some oak. It's a little bit like a Chardonnay in that respect. Not as big, not as rich, not as opulent, but has some of those elements to it. So I think just a nice versatile white and the oak on it is not like big oak. It's just, sort of lovely, lovely sort of layered in there, just adds a little bit of texture and weight rather than anything that's overtly oaky. So just a nice, fresh, but kind of creamy sort of style white wine. Sounds absolutely delicious. How much is that going to set us back, Miles? So that one is $33 on the shelf. Brilliant. A New Zealand Pinot Blanc, Corrie. Good to remember. It's a very good one. I'm making notes here. And what about your red recommendation? So the red, I'm choosing something from Tuscany. It's a, a wine called from a producer called Quechabella. It's Mongrana. It's made on the Tuscan coast. It's a mixture of 50% Sangiovese and then 25-25 Cabernet and Merlot. So wow. again, it has a yeah, it's wonderful. It has all that lovely sort of fresh kind of sour cherry Sangiovese fruit and those lovely tannin and that little bite that you get from Sangiovese, but it's all filled out by this beautiful sort of plush Cabernet and Merlot. So for me, I just think that's like perfect for something like roast lamb or some sort of like nice roast piece of red meat. It's just spot on, lovely sort of medium to full body, that lovely rich fruit, but that lovely sort of acid and tannin to sort of cut through the protein, which is like perfect for for, uh, that kind of food. Sounds absolutely beautiful. And let's face it, mm. something, I don't know why, it's become almost the food tradition, hasn't it? Fish on Good Friday, roast lamb yeah. on Easter Sunday. I don't I quite think know what that means in religious terms, but it's what everyone sure. seems to do. It's traditions. Uh, it is tradition. I always think, like, you know, I think any excuse to probably eat some, some fish, for, obviously, for those who can and who like it, any excuse to have fish in your diet is probably not a bad thing. And then tell us, what are we having with our hot cross bun? The hot cross bun. So I was just like, I have to match something with hot cross bun. So I was running around yesterday trying to sort of see the right sort of thing. And I, I picked a Yolumba um, antique tawny port. Um, so Yolumba have made fortified wines for, you know, forever, basically. And they're very good at it. They have a few, but this is their antique tawny. So it's a blend of, you know, these very old barrels of tawny port made with some Portuguese grapes and Shiraz Grenache. So fortified, sweet, and has that lovely kind of like smoky leather and tobacco thing that you get from those aged components of the wine and that lovely sort of sweet spice and red fruit and clove and all those kind of lovely warm kind of winter spice that goes with it. And it's sweet, but it's not super, super sweet. I mean, it is is a sweet wine, definitely. And I just think that, you know, with those sort of dried fruits that you get in the hot cross buns and those kind of dried citrus peel stuff that you get in that wine, it's just like the perfect combo. The words tawny port take me right back to the 70s, Caro, when, the, they do. when the, usually the gentlemen around the table would have a port after their meal. No well, wonder. No no, and, then, and, then, and then in the 70s they used to get into their motor cars and drive home. 
Right. What did all those What did all those <laughs> pommy country folks say when Prince Charles and Princess Diana would go to London? And Diana would be, you know, talking about something that they felt was completely wildly unsuitable, like her love of musicals, and she's not my sort. Pass support. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we digress. Um, Miles, thank you for those recommendations. So it's a Pinot no Blanc problem. escarpment um, from New Zealand, $33. Oh, how much is the uh, the Tuscan um, the Tuscan red? The Mongrana is 38 and I think the Tawny Port is 24 That's a good um, deal. The Lumber Antique Tawny Port for $24. That's yeah. a, how do you and do it for the price? I don't know. I, that's you know. I have to say, from your lumber too, that's awesome. It has some really like it has like forty year old components in it. So you've got this lovely character. It's just such a really, it's a wonderful wine for the money. Fantastic, uh, Miles. Thank you very much, and to all the gang at Prince Wine Store, we say hello, and of course to our podcast listeners. Don't forget to jump online princewinestore.com.au, or you can go and visit Miles and the gang down at their lovely South Melbourne. Wine store, Carol, we'll have to do another event down at Prince. I loved that night we did there. Have a wonderful Easter, Miles. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, you too, everyone. Be safe. Carol, on to BSF Book, Screen and Food. And this segment, of course, is brought to us by Red Energy. And um, I'm going to kick it off with a remarkable book that I have read. And this is a complicated one to discuss, so I'm going to keep it pretty short. Don Watson, you know Don Watson. How do you know Don Watson? Because he used to be Paul Keating's speechwriter. He was married to Hilary McPhee and now he's married... Partner. Now he's um, with that brilliant writer, Chloe Hooper, who wrote The Tall Man, That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And he is a friend of mine and he is uh, a huge supporter of the Sorrento Writers' Festival and will be with us. In fact, he and Chloe are coming down for two or three days of the festival, which is really great. Uh, Look, I have to declare that, as I said, Don is a friend, so I'm declaring my vested interest here, but I have been a long-time fan before I knew him. Recollections of a Bleeding Heart was that amazing award-winning memoir that he wrote about being Paul Keating's speechwriter. It's it's an incredible portrait of a prime minister. If anybody ever wants to read biography memoir in its finest form, I would suggest that. He also wrote The Bush, Death Sentence, uh, Dictionary of Weasel Words, uh, lots and lots of um, interesting books and collections. And, of course, he's a prolific essay writer and for magazines and newspapers such as uh, the Saturday Paper. And now we have his new book, The Passion of Private White. And this book is uh, the story of a larger-than-life figure who tried to make a difference in the world of black and white Australia. Neville White a Latrobe University colleague of Don's back in the 1960s, was an anthropologist who spent many years studying and working with the hunter-gatherer clans in the top end, and they were the disappearing clans. Caro, I think Neville and his anthropologist colleagues knew in the 60s and 70s as they discovered these tribes who some of them had never seen whitefellas before. I think they realised that they were part of a changing world and this was the last opportunity to gather information. And that's what Neville did for many years and uh, never inserting himself into the community, but over time he did, of course, become one of their trusted friends. But this story has its genesis, I think, when Don excuse me, was a young student at the then-fledgling La Trobe University in 1968, and he met Neville. Neville had just arrived home from the Vietnam War, 
where he had served two years. And he was determined to kickstart his academic career again. He was a little older than Don, but um, but just as engaged in the academic space. And Neville, as I said, went on to be uh, an eminent anthropologist. Something happened in the 1990s, I think it was. He was lecturing one day and he had a terrible incident, post-traumatic stress disorder. There was something in that lecture room that triggered him off to the memory of the jungle at Vietnam. Um, Neville had... Uh, had some issues relating to that. He left the academic life, but he continued his connection with these top-end communities. And this story is partly Neville's story, but it's also Don's observation because Don would go up with Neville many years in a row and actually work in the communities um, and also got to know and observed Neville becoming increasingly closer to these particular clans. And I think what's so uh, beautiful about this story, Caro, is... Um, Neville's, is it a crossover when the academic, it's a bit like journalists, isn't it? When you're the observer, you are the detached observer of something that's happening over here, but there's often a moment when you do have to become involved and engaged. And Neville was observing this particular occasion. Um, Neville was observing um, community life. Um, he noticed that one of the um, one of the chaps in the tribe, um, his wife was sitting on top of his stomach and she was trying to pull at his tooth. He was in agony with a toothache. And she kept saying to Neville, there's a grub in there. There's a grub in there. And she's kind of got a stick and trying to get this thing out, this tooth out. And, of course, her husband is is reeling in agony. And Neville just went enough, went inside his tent, got the antibiotics. And from that point, really, he then became kind of part of the community to the extent where he worked with them and for them in later in the, in the 2000s on mining rights um, and and going to court with them and representing them. Don Watson is an extraordinary writer. And I think on the eve of the voice to parliament referendum, if you're kind of wondering what it all means and where is it all going and what is the hope and what is the lack of hope for many black communities in Australia, this book is it. It is an incredible, through one, one person's story, Neville White, and through his connection with one particular top-end community, uh, I think it all becomes apparent about the waste of money and and people in Canberra making ill-advised decisions um, about funding, about education of, of First Nations communities. It's an incredible book, The Passion of Private White by Don Watson. And as I said, he will be talking about this with Paul Daly, the eminent... Um, reporter from The Guardian. They will be talking about it at the Sorrento Writers' Festival. Great book, Caro. Um, go on, you kick off the screen that we both love. Oh, no, this was recommended to us by our friend Mary. Um, it is on Netflix. It's, I think, the first Greek drama to appear on Netflix, certainly the first Greek TV series, and it's called Maestro in Blue. It was originally called Maestro, but it's now Maestro in Blue. The acting is amazing, Cara. <coughs> when you say that it is the first Netflix, I- I'm thinking, where have all these actors been? They're brilliant. Well, the creator of the show is also the star of the show. His name is Christophorus Papakaliatis, and he plays... Papakaliatis. He plays the music performer, teacher, maestro, who comes to the beautiful island of Paxos in the Ionian Sea, um, just as COVID is coming to an end, to reignite the island's music festival. And the sort of, it, it starts with a rather sinister scene of 
we think a body being dragged through the sort of a wooded area on the island of Paxos, and then it moves back to this beautiful, I mean, it's sort of trouble in paradise. There's an element of Ozark in it. There's an element of, um, it, it's so operatic, but it is also, you get to look at, you know, one of the most beautiful islands in the Ionian Sea, and you know how much I love that part of Greece, you know, up north near sort of Corfu, Albania, Lefkada, et cetera. Um, it's just stunning. The scenery and the narrators change from from episode to episode. I love that too. Opening um, with the daughter of this incredibly dysfunctional family, so they're the main family. There's two two families really who feature, and there's some pretty there's some pretty horrible themes. I mean, there's you know drug addiction, there's domestic abuse, really bad you know family violence actually, and there's also um, crime, underworld crime, smuggling. There's um, a gay member of the family whose family haven't quite accepted that he's gay. He's never actually told them he's gay. There's a lot of stuff going on and there's clearly going to be a really terrible crime at some point. I'm three episodes in. I love the way it's narrated. And don't make my mistake of watching it dubbed as I did when I started. Go back and watch it in subtitles because it's so much more better to understand. Mm, I love, I, I, I'm, I'm loving reading it. Um, Christophorus um, Papakaliatis, as you said, who plays Orestes, the musician, um, he arrives and you do think it is going to be a little bit like a, um, a, a jaunt. It might be some sort of... In fact, the, the image that they use to promote this character gives everything away. I'm very cross with Netflix for the still that they have chosen because it, it maligns... Well, first of all, it's the dead giveaway, but it maligns also. Spoiler alert! Don't say what it is. No, I'm not going to say what yep. it is. But it, but it, it, it just maligns. I think a deeper hidden drama. So when you mention the body, and this is giving nothing away because we don't see the body. The, a body is being dragged through the bush. We assume it's a well, body do, or somebody else. You do by the third episode. You do. That's exactly yep. right. And but this, it, well, in fact, even the second. But but it's it, it, you know that this is not all. This is not going to be like Mamma Mia, Mark Three, or anything. This is quite serious. Even though I think the the young um, the young girl who has a total crush on um, the the new music teacher, she is and who we realise they've actually met before. That's well. I wasn't going to give that away either. But it's beautifully shot. It's but it, but it, there is a really strong dramatic element, as Caro said. Organised crime, um, corruption, bribery. It's all there in this beautiful island of Paxos. I think it is, isn't it? Yep. Which is um, you. I mean, I, unfortunately, and um, one of the main characters makes a point that it's a beautiful island and not too spoiled by tourists. I'm a bit nervous now that <laughs> those days are gone for Paxos because. Boy, oh boy, do they show it in all its beauty. Well, we go if you, to yeah, if you watch Maestro in blue, you want to go there immediately, don't yes. you? Yes, we also go to Corfu, which is a beautiful island. A lot of kids, it's really, you, people have, um, friends of mine have just binged it in two nights. Oh, well, I'm I'm binging it. I can't wait to go home and see what's happening. But uh, So I've watched uh, two episodes, so I can't wait. I think there are nine in the first series and they're talking about a second series. But Caro, just... Um, isn't it interesting to have a script that uses the end of COVID or the impact of lockdown and COVID on a tourism resort yes. and then the coming out of COVID and how all the characters are adapting, almost fawning any tourist who seems to get off the boat? Yeah, exactly. And um, and the and even, you know, the rental car industry, cars are just left by the port with keys in them and you know, people just get in and drive away. And But, you know, the, the um, oh, the, the shots of, you know, there's something about that you know, 
that Greek blue. Oh, the li- the light of the sky and you know, the reflection of the water. It is. It's pretty. It's a pretty amazing um, series. I love it. You love it. Maestro in Blue on Netflix. A good one for the Easter binge. Now, speaking of binging, I want to. Be- you've showed me the photograph of this one tray bake. Um, one I tray bin- chicken. I want to binge on that. Thanks to my sister Moggs for um, dragging the recipe down from Sydney and giving it to me a few weeks ago. What is it about me that when I get out the Good Weekend or the Weekend Australian magazine, I bypass Philip Adams and all those other great columnists and brilliant articles and go straight to the recipes to see if I'm going to cook it that weekend? This one is so easy and so enjoyable. It's a midweek. If you're a bit stressed and you're having a dinner party and you're not really sure what you're going to do, it would really work then, jazzed up with a really nice salad. The one-tray chicken involves chicken thighs, bone-in, skin-on, the best way to do a one-tray chicken bake, in my view. And you don't do anything. The only thing you have to do, you chuck everything in the pan. This involves um, kifla potatoes, peeled and chopped, roughly. Oh, which I'm just rediscovering the last year or so. I love a kifla potato. I didn't even peel mine. I just chopped them. Um, but, yeah, you're probably into smaller pieces. Cherry tomatoes left whole. Don't even have to half them. Half a cup of, this is for four people, half a cup of green olives in brine, pitted and halved. And then you add olive brine into the tray as well. Capers, heaps of capers. Um, Half a lemon, really, really thinly sliced. Four cloves of garlic, lightly smashed. The the one sort of, and you also chuck in, you chuck on top of the chicken a mixture of oregano, heaps of oregano. I think it's um, half a cup. Leaves all picked. This is only the only fiddly bit. Um, and you mortar and pestle it with olive oil, four tablespoons, and a tablespoon of red wine vinegar. Or you can just do it in a small little Maggi mix, a small little spice uh, herb Wizard. chopper, Wizard, mm. whatever. And I, that's what I did because I was just doing it for Brendan and I at home. I just halved everything and we absolutely loved it. So you, when you've done the oregano mix, you put that on top of the chicken and dot it all around the tray. You chuck the whole thing into a 200 oven for about 40 or 50 minutes, take it out, serve it with a delicious green salad. It is so beautiful. I'll put the photos up on our show notes, Miss Jane. Sounds delicious. And just on the topic of whizzes, hello again to Daniel. Remember the nice doctor in Geelong who was stranded during lockdown, became a fan of the podcast and sent to me at the shop when I said I don't have a proper little whizzer. He sent me my little whizzer, which I use all the time. I'm very happy I think to about hear you about every your t- I think about I think about you every time I use it. Speaking of, and I know we're doing BSF. I redid my bookshelves in Melbourne over the weekend because um, colour coordinate. I'm, I'm off it. I've gone You've off. Been it. listening to your mother. No, oh, I have, and I started off colour coordinating. Whenever she sees mine, it's that tone of voice that Jewel uses, which is. The colour coordinates. Well, as you know, we had a really bad leak. We have to have everything repainted and fixed and there's all some major construction going on. The books have sat in boxes for months and I just haven't been able to face it. I've redone every shelf in the entire house as a result. And I did start colour coordinating and there's a bit of colour coordinating, but I just went, this is ridiculous. I've got to put authors together. Mm-mm. I mean, I've got four Daphne de Maurier's. I've got five Ian McEwan's. I'm not going to put them separately. I want to know. I've put the biographies together. I've put the poets together. I've put playwrights together. 
It doesn't look as colour coordinated, but I know where my books are now. And your room and will still look looks, smaller. Your room will look smaller. Still looks good. And I'm feeling like I know where everything is. Now, Corrie, because you're going to kick us off with the next segment, I should say thank you to Red Energy. That was BSF, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Corrie, you're grumpy. I hate it when members of the opposition of either party decide not to attend a significant significant national moment. Oh, I know what you're going to say. This is, this is disgraceful what happened. So last week, rang. last week, well, this is Peter Dutton. Yeah, this is when the um, introduction to Parliament of the Indigenous Voice Bill was brought forward. A wonderful speech, I thought, by the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, and a full house on one side of the house. But opposition leader Peter Dutton refused to say if he's making a political statement when he was absent and most of his coalition colleagues from when the bill was introduced to Parliament last Thursday. I don't understand. I don't understand how he can possibly do that. There were 60 Indigenous elders who had gathered in the public gallery for this momentous occasion and the leader of the opposition was not there. He said he had a prior meeting. It makes me really grumpy. And then, of course, he loses the Aston by-election on the weekend. I wonder how many voters thought about that, listened to some of the commentators, because there was some terrific impartial commentary about, about the role of an opposition leader when a big, when, when a big national bill is introduced. Um, I wondered if any of them listened to that and actually their vote was impacted by that, almost like it was the last straw. It was so rude. What about when there was a division last week in Canberra yes. and the bell rang and they and all the libs charged out of the room? Hurting they, people. They they accidentally, including one of the women members, um, knocked a security guard, a woman security guard. Did you ever think... Dan Tian was there. there was, it was did, disgraceful. Did you ever think in the Australian Parliament, Carol, you would hear the Speaker of the House admonish people for hurting the security person who is on the door because they were hurt because there was this rush of, in this case, coalition members to get out of the house. They didn't want to be part of it. Oh, what is going on? Yeah, no, that was, it was just a, a... Peter Dutton, discipline, discipline your team. This is just very bad behaviour. Anyway, I would say the same thing if it was happening on the other side. I promise you there have been times when Labor leaders have not been there for significant and they have incurred my wrath as well. Caro, on to six quick questions for Red Energy. Corrie, I'll kick off. What post-COVID trend is the Melbourne City Council quickly going to have to get its head around? The report in the Herald Sun on the weekend, Caro, that said more CBD employees have returned to the office but only on a part-time basis and that uh, more than expected employees are less committed to the idea of working five days a week in their CBD office. So this is going to have a huge impact on local businesses in the CBD, cafes, restaurants, uh, all, so, all the service services. Um, I have a friend who has a chemist in the CBD pulling his hair out at this stage. Uh, so I think that there has to be a real rethink. I know the Melbourne City Council is onto this, but it does seem like it's here according to this particular report. Most people are opting for a three-day week in the office, so that makes uh, that's a huge um, impact financially on our CBD. Yeah, COVID's got a lot to answer for, I reckon. The, the off, I mean, it, it's, that's an understatement. It's, but in just in in terms of things people used to do. I mean, I I was ranting about this on Footy Classified the other night, but you know, football games aren't covered now. 
properly. I mean, oh, Fox, Caro, Fo- Fox Footy didn't send a team to cover this showdown. None of the major radio stations were at that game we talked about earlier, the Hawthorne North Melbourne game in Tasmania, where the shots of everyone was wanting the shot of Alistair Clarks and, and Sam Mitchell maybe getting together or avoiding each other. You never saw it because the coverage was sort of okay, but so many journos weren't there and not one of the local journos asked the question of either man afterwards about so, whether they were so going to I agree. And this is, So this anecdote is a, is a direct result of COVID and a problem we have. You know, we call Melbourne the event capital. Well, that's what we would like to, the government would like us to be pitching ourselves at. So yesterday I had a meeting at Sorrento with our really lovely Mark, who is doing all our staging and sound for the festival. 90-something events, it's a big gig. And he is demented because he doesn't have enough staff. There aren't enough tech tech people. He says half of them left the industry during lockdown and they're now all doing other things. And the challenge is to get young people or, or older people into the industry or back into the industry. And the government has all of these events planned all over, whether it's a fest, writer's festival or whether well, it's People are turning up. People want to go out. I mean, the people Grand Prix numbers were extraordinary. The football attendances are extraordinary. But you're lucky if you can get somebody to stage, you know, find a microphone for you. It's just, it was a real issue. Anyway, um, for another day. Caro, what does the Daisy Pierce controversy say about women in football? Well, I think it says that they're respected. I think the fact that clubs are saying no, um, some clubs are saying they don't want Daisy Pierce in her other role as a Channel 7 commentator in the rooms is saying that they respect her as a potential senior coach and a senior member of Geelong's coaching staff. Well, well do you re- think that's what it is then? I do. I mean, they I, acknowledge her role. That's well, good. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, people say it's petty and what do you really see in dressing rooms and football dressing rooms anyway? I mean, journos are in there, but if clubs are feeling uncomfortable, it means they rate her footy knowledge and expertise and they're saying, we don't want to start a trend of opposition coaches in our rooms. If they saw her just as a token, then they probably wouldn't care. Corrie. That's a very good point, Caro. What literary event are you looking forward to in 2023? I'm holding this up to the microphone, everybody, so you can see it. Anna Funder, who wrote Stasi Land and All That I Am, has a new book, a new novel coming out. Finally, it's been such a wait. Wife to Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life. This is the story of George, well, it's a novel based on the life of George Orwell's wife, who uh, Eileen O'Shaughnessy um, was her name. And she was uh, an apparent literary gem on the landscape. But um, she was written out of George Orwell's story uh, and I gather gave a lot to, um, to his career, Eileen. So this is her story. Anna Funder's new novel comes out in July. Caro, can't wait for that one. Can't wait. Caro, what's your Easter highlight? We haven't had it yet. Well, it's normally, no, well, every Easter has its unique set of highlights. And as we always agree, Okay, what are you is, looking forward well, to? Well, food is obviously one of them. And, and I agree with a lot of my friends. I think Anna says, Anna from the Op Shop I prefer says it to too. Christmas. Well, the food is better and you enjoy it more because it's autumnal. And it's and also you haven't been racing around wrapping presents and doing things to the last minute. I know we always say we love spring and summer, but I love autumn. I just love it. I just love it. I, um, the highlight, another highlight for me this year has been the end of daylight saving, which just dragged on a couple of weeks too long. In fact, I didn't even realise it had ended when I was walking with a girlfriend on Sunday morning, and she pointed it out, and I realised I'd had an extra hour's sleep, which was. But didn't what didn't you realise when you were meeting each other at a designated well, time? Well, no, because I just looked at my phone, so you, the, your phone changes automatically. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. It was it was a very weird feeling, but it really is nice to go for an early morning walk and it's actually light. And I love the tides and I love the shells you find on the beach. They're three things I love about Easter. What about you? 
the Easter egg hunt with grandchildren. Although last time we had one, I mean, Coco, we'll have to ch- chat to Coco because she put them in such difficult positions. At one point, I remember saying to her, Coco, they're three and four years old. <laughs> sort of up trees and... Don't overdo it. Don't make I mean, it too were, difficult. Kids are walking around like, oh, can't, we can't find it. Oh, gosh, you know, where are they? Um, yeah, so there you go. Now, Caro, you have an amazing fact to finish off our six quick questions. Well, the gather round and the circumstances which led to it is my amazing fact. Now, I know this is a, fo- is a footy story, but it's also a cultural story and it's a really interesting story about South Australia where football is, frankly, struggling. Uh I think Queensland is about to or has already taken over as football's third highest participant state in the country behind Victoria and Western Australia. That, I find that staggering. South Australia South was always Australia. such a strong football well, it's a, state. It's a traditional footy state. So last year the AFL, the AFL is basically adding another week to the footy calendar, a whole extra round of football. And so the clubs were playing 22 rounds a year. Now they're going to play 23, plus there's a buy round. So the actual home and away season will go for 24 weeks. So they've extended the season, extended another whole round of footy games, and they're all going to be played around the city of Adelaide, including one in the Adelaide Hills at Mount Barker. So nine games of footy over a four-day period in South Australia. This was first conceived by um, the AFL. I think David Stevenson, one of the uh, the former Bulldogs chief executive who works for the AFL, had the idea and it was originally envisaged to sort of copy what I think they call magic round. The NRL have a magic round up in Queensland. But it was really about trying to get people from Sydney to fall in love with footy. And it was it was always going to be in Sydney. It was an idea. The AFL have never really got their head around the way to properly promote footy in Sydney, in my view. Swans do it really well, but the AFL, the ads are wrong. They don't ever really promote the start of the season correctly. They don't really promote the GWS Sydney games correctly. They're trying to get people into the heartland of New South Wales. When they announced shortly in the week of the grand final that they were going to have a round of football like Magic Round, and Gather Round is sort of a bit of a lame name, but sort of coming around to it. The South Australian Premier, I mean, a lot of states wanted to have this. I think Queensland was interested. Obviously, you have to pay a lot of money to get it. I think WA was interested. The South Australian Premier, Peter Malinowskis, just decided, no, this is ours. This has to be ours. And he... On grand final day, he was bailing up anyone at the MCG, you know, behind the glass and out on the out in the stands who would listen about why it had to be for South Australia. He called me, I don't really even know him, he called me one day from Korea where he was on a trade trip or some sort of trip to say why it had to be in South Australia. He pointed out that... I'm presuming South Korea. Yes, I guess so. Well, you know, Korea, sorry. Um <laughs> He he pointed out that, you know, Queensland had a grand final during COVID. WA had a grand final during COVID. I mean, the AFL would say South Australia weren't prepared to fill the stands. They would only do half the stands of the Adelaide Oval because of COVID. And remember all of the COVID number issues. He just pushed and pushed and pushed. And in the end, he wore down the AFL and he sold it so well that the entire gather round is going to kick off next Wednesday after Easter Monday with a... A very glittering function at McGill Estate, the home of Penfold's Wines, a very lavish cocktail party that I guess will sort of double up as a 
bit of a farewell, another farewell for Gillan McLaughlin. Are you going over with the frock? What do you think, Corrie? They're with bells on. Anyone worth their footy sold is going over there. Um, so there's a Thursday night game, there's a Friday night game, there's Saturday games, there's Sunday games, there's that game in the Adelaide Hills, there's games at the old um, Norwood, Norwood Oval. Oh, wow. And I'd love to of... go to that Mount Barker. That, uh, that popped up It'd on the television the other night. It looks a gorgeous ground. Have been there, just down the road from my sister's. Oh, yeah, Jane's Stunning. South Australian. We're sitting here pretending we know everything about <laughs> South Australia. Miss Jane, I'm dragging Brendan over. Um, sadly, um, I'm coming back on the Sunday to do Offsiders on the ABC who aren't going to do their show there. I think Channel 9's doing the Sunday footy show there. Obviously, all the bro- most of the broadcasters are going over. So it's like a a, a, a writers' festival for for footy people. The you gather can just go round. over to here, go to that. The gather round. There's so what's lunches the, so with the premier. This is fascinating. There's... But what's the fact of the week? Well, it's the, it's the it's a deep dive into how gather round came about and this football cultural revolution came about and how South Australia... And one premier just crying one well, loud enough to go, what about me? Well, it just, it's just, as it turns out, I think it's going to put help put South Australian footy back on the map. So, Janie, do you think this will help put South put football back on the South Australian map? Well, I thought it was still on the map in South Australia. It They're is. mad for it. Of course, of course it is. I mean, For tourism, yeah, great. Uh, but, Damien Barrett, our friend from um, the other podcast, the sounding board suggested they should move the show down to Melbourne one year, the the Adelaide Port Adelaide game, because people would see how great it is. I mean, sacrilegious, sacrilegious. (laughs) Adelaide Oval is absolutely beautiful. I'm really looking forward to it. And I just think it's interesting that footy has done this. And South Australia was saying they want it not just this year, but next year as well. And I can feel that you're going to catch up with your radio friends too. Those those chaps that take you out for drinks when you go over there. Um, I'll definitely catch up with um, Rowie, with Stephen Rowe and Tim Junivan from 5AA. And I'll be, no, it'd just be a really great way to watch footy. Richmond's Fantastic. playing Sydney on the Thursday night. Essendon's playing um, in the Twilight game on the Saturday. There's a big game Thursday night, which is, which is another major function at the Adelaide Oval. It's going to be incredible. Oh, how wonderful. Gather round, oh, well, Gather, gather round. I'll, I'll gather round. And then, so I do that, go to Adelaide that weekend and then everybody come to Sorrento the following. Uh, that was a little plug for the SorrentoWritersFestival.com.au. You can buy tickets now, $25 for all the sessions. Um, have a look at the website. Caro. You can also buy tickets to a live podcast event. You can indeed. Don't forget that. So you can jump on. Um, uh, how do you actually find it, Jane? I can't Feedback remember. Feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. No, that's, the, that's the email. Email me if you can't find the booking link. But in the show notes, subscribe to our weekly email uh, newsletter that we send out. You'll find the links there. You can just Google it, live podcast event. Corey, but send me an email if you have any issues. And also, I don't know whether it's because we're becoming more popular and we have more listeners or whether there's just some malfunction, but I've noticed in our feedback line, Janie, that quite a lot of people are asking for recipes. They're having problems with recipe collation. The issue is the new podcast platform is limited to 4,000 characters. I used to be able to put pages of notes in our podcast notes, so... Like Alice Savlasky's recipe the other day, computer said no, way too long for our show notes. So I have to try and find a link or send it out via that newsletter. We're going to have to do our own website. In fact, we'll have to do a cookbook. If anybody would like to sponsor the, <laughs> the Don't Shoot the Messenger cookbook, the three of us are up for it. Caro, lovely to chat. Uh, oh, well, I'll see you before you go to the gather round. We'll gather around this weekend, actually. We will. I might I've... see you for a little drink on um, East, uh, what day? Good Friday, we might see you. We might have a little jaunt over the water to Queenscliff to catch up with an old friend.
with an, with We've got lots of plans. Lots of things to do. Speaking of show notes, some um, the one tray chicken bake recipe is not only the official picture, but my before and after picture and how I served it up. I reckon if you want an easy meal this week, go to. Go to. Um, thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to us this week and every week. And don't forget to tell your friends that we are here. The more people who discover us, uh, the better it is, particularly for our show sponsors who we love, Red Energy, 100% Australian Electricity and Gas, and, of course, Prince Wine Store. Don't forget to visit princewinestore.com.au. We love hearing your feedback and your messages. Don't forget uh, if you want to get in touch with us. And, indeed, we're resurrecting this week the Dear Carol and Corrie segments. So don't forget if you have any uh, dilemmas or questions you'd like to hear our discussion, just uh, send us an email, feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. And um, I think that's it. Go Hawks. Let's try and make it two in a row and avoid the asterisks of Caroline Wilson. I'll tell you what, a challenge. Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.